Hello and welcome to How to Medieval, the how-to where two guys show you how to do it between the two of them. I nearly missed it this time. <laughs> so, I am Ari. And I'm Matt. And welcome to this episode where we're going to talk about the backstories we put into impressions. Yes, or as we, uh, as known, the persona. Right. So we hear this word persona. So in, in this podcast, we talk a lot about impressions and portrayals. But the word persona is it floats and hovers around and looks in through windows and is waiting for us really to acknowledge it because it's a big part of what some people put into their living history workflow and what they're doing with their research. So it's important that we talk about the level of backstory we want to put into our impressions and how much do we need and how much is maybe too much or... It just that's what we're going to explore in this topic today. And if it doesn't necessarily have an exact answer, clearly everything is nuanced. And so we're going to be talking about the spectrum of of where it might apply to what you want to do. But do you feel you need to have a full backstory or or no backstory, things like that? So, uh, all right, to start out, why don't you tell us you know, what your persona is? Oh, well, absolutely. So you see, born on a ship at sea during a thunderstorm off the Iberian coast. My father was a, a merchant who had just bought this ship for the first time, and we were worried that it was going to go down, and they took it as a sign from heaven that this baby was born. On the okay, whoa, coast of whoa, the... Ari, 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 Ari. What? That's a character. Oh, you know what? You're going to have to explain the difference to me, because clearly I don't understand. <laughs> So, folks, what we that was a little set up there just to get us into this, of course. But what Ari was doing there, he was really creating a character's backstory. And a persona and a character aren't always the same thing. So if we actually look at what the de definition of a persona is, the, the first one is a, a character assumed by an author in a written work. That can be... A lot of different things that can be highly fanciful or it can be just a, you know, a, a very literal sort of narrative persona. It's also the individual's social facade or front that, that especially in the analytic psychology of C.J. Uh, C.G. Jung reflects the role in life the individual is playing or the personality that a person such as an actor or politician projects in public their public image. And finally, it could be usually, which is plural, the persona, the a character in a fictional presentation, such as a novel or a play. Like I said, that's usually used in the plural. What Ari was just doing was was really being more of the number three, which is that fictional presentation. He was going way, 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 way in depth on a character's backstory. And that can be that can be good. It can be good in a lot of ways. It can be a lot of fun. And if you just want to have a character's backstory because you think it's awesome and you want to have a lot of fun and you like writing things like that, then go for it. Completely go for it. Pull out all the stops. Be the, the fourth son of a medieval mercenary pirate who sailed the high seas for France uh, trying to attack the English coast. Go for it. But there are diminishing returns with this is the problem. And that's why we want to throw out this caution is that the expectation that some people may intentionally or unintentionally set by having developed a long and in-depth backstory, which is possible that something that they brought in over time. You know, we, we see people build these elaborate impressions of material culture and they didn't go and they didn't just fill up their their cart at the medieval target are us and just bring it all out in one big go. They may have spent 10 years developing their living history impression on the physical material culture side. It's also very likely that a lot of these people have developed this long and in-depth backstory as a component of research they've done over the course of many years of living history. So we don't want there to be this bar set super high, at which point it's not really helping you in the first place. However, I don't want us to overcorrect and say, well, Clearly, backstory is not important. It really is, because backstory can act as a scaffold for all of these other choices that we say are very important. So when we're saying pick your time and your location and your social status, 
you've just created three major character choices, or rather persona choices, that will go and inform the rest of your living history. And so if you have a character idea, even if you don't necessarily need to write its 45-page autobiography, but if you have a character idea, that can work hand-in-hand with developing the key decisions that we advise people to come to when they're making a living history impression on the material culture side to keep themselves aligned and coherent. Exactly. And a lot of the times when you're when you're writing these, you know, you're gonna find that a lot of those details that you put in that, you know, you think are are cool and, and give yourself an interesting backstory, they may not actually affect your interpretation at all. And that's when you really gotta start go th- going through and sort of making those edits to your persona's story to only keep the things that really affect how you go into your interpretation. So a persona should really be used, like I said, as a scaffold or more like a, a map, a guidepost, as it were, to the direction you want to take your persona. And there are only a certain number of ways that, you know, a persona can go based on any one detail. So saying things like, you know, I'm the son of a poor merchant. Well, there, you're only going to be limited on two, on like two different ways you can really go with that. You can yourself be a poor merchant or you can go into the military or be a farmer or something like that. So really, it's, it's boiling down those those details and picking out which will really have an impact. I like to use the KISS acronym, the keep it simple, stupid. I don't like to use the stupid. I I say keep it simple, silly most of the time, but it is the the G version of it. it Like keep it simple, silly. And basically that's just saying, you know, like my own persona. And being in the SCA, the SCA does encourage people to create a persona. And people create that persona to use in a, in a lot of different ways. Uh, they use it to sort of, like Ari said, scaffold or make a framework of what clothing they wear, what items they might use, what other cultures that they may have been in contact with, uh, things like that. It can also go into the what food might you have eaten, you know, what type of housing would you have lived in? What kind of armor could you have had because of of your social status? Things things like that. So when I say keep it simple, it's like so my persona in the SCA at its core is a early 15th century man at arms stationed in Calais, uh, France. English, of course, because Calais was uh, owned by and occupied by England by this time. Um, garrisoned there, and I am awaiting the return of uh, Henry V, who I've heard, I've just gotten news, has landed uh, at the shore and is laying siege to Harfleur. So that's, in a nutshell, what my persona is. I don't go back as far to say, you know, I'm the second or third son of somebody somewhere. Uh, I am definitely stay away from things like I'm a mercenary because... What we believe to be mercenary these days really wasn't what a mercenary was then. So, you know, it's keeping it non-muddled is what I like. Now, people may disagree because they may say that having a rich and robust backstory gives them more, you know, material to work with. Or people just say, you know, they just like having it because it's fun. And if that's why you like it, then go for it. Right. Write it up. Write the book on it. I'd love to. I'd love to read it. I definitely don't want to discourage people from writing a fiction that they enjoy just for the sake of writing. I mean, it's like people play D&D, I play D&D, and I come up with a a backstory that is sometimes more exciting than the campaign, depending on who the DM is. And that's okay, because it wasn't that I needed to impose that backstory onto the game, but it's because I enjoyed writing it, and I enjoyed coming up with a character, and whether or not some of it gets used didn't matter in that context. However, we only have so much time in a day, and the question becomes, if we're allocating certain time to living history pursuits, we have to split it between either making our stuff or 
going to a job to make money to pay for our stuff. And we have to be working on developing our knowledge base. And our knowledge base is really never done because there's always new research coming out. There's always new archaeological finds. And so we need to be reading and studying. And so when we add to the mix, we all are we also going to be writing our our epic biography for this one impression when, as we know, we may have two or three impressions and our impression of this man at war may not reflect the impression we do of the man in camp. And then now we're writing two epic bioptics. And so we have to see when it comes to triaging time, my question for people is at what point are these details adding to your impression? Because there's only so much you're ever going to be able to tell the public. Keep in mind, you know, the, the brief times we get to talk to people at public events or demonstrations, you know, you might have the floor at a demonstration where if you go to a, if you go to the school, like the way that Matt does through the Azure Corps soldier, he's got the floor for 30 minutes to an hour. But if you were at a timeline event, I've noticed that we spend maybe 10 minutes with somebody and we spend a lot of that time explaining things that they're pointing at and finding interesting. We're talking about why a Pipkin is a funny little pot and we're talking about why patents are funny little shoes and we talk about swords and armor and then they're gone. And we never once talked about who my brother was in my impression. Does this help you do a better impression? Because there's lots of background information that you can give to yourself that will inform and even if you don't talk about it directly, will influence the type of impression that you are able to portray. And outside of the SCA, when you're doing impressions to the public, such as third person impressions, where instead of doing the I, you're saying I represent. So in the SCA, as you know, we understand it, the persona is who you are while you're in the game. Because while you're in an S at an SCA event during a feast, you are playing the part of a person in this romanticized picture of the past that is being created through the SCA event. But at a living history event, you're not necessarily saying I am so-and-so, whereas you're more saying I represent so-and-so. And what I found is that a couple human details can hook the public a little bit. And we talked about this a little bit in one of my articles on choosing a name, is that people relate to people a whole lot better than they relate to ideas or to population groups. And so if you say, I represent Joe the blacksmith, even if you never say another thing about Joe having a hard time learning to do pattern welds, but was really great at, at shaping and, or who his father was or how many times he moved because he had to dodge the plague or whatever you've added to the backstory, if you never are able to share any of that, but you are able to say, instead of, hey, I am a blacksmith in the 14th century, I represent john the blacksmith from so-and-so in the 14th century all you've pretty much done is acknowledge those three pillars of a living history impression where you're from what time you're from what social status you're from and then added a name and that adds a huge amount of personality to the top of your third person impression however as we talked as i was mentioning with diminishing returns the more you add to it, if you don't have a floor to present it, it doesn't necessarily increase your ability to do a good impression unless these details will then inform you during research. And I think that's one of the things that we miss about Persona is that we see it as a way of building a character, as you were saying, Matt. But we forget that this character can serve us to decide what we need to research. And I, you mentioned that a little bit earlier with saying, what should we eat or what kind of material culture will I have access to? If you craft this story, so to speak, of where this person may have spent some of their time, that will then inform you on research when you have all of medieval Europe trying to figure out what to research on and what kind of culture to look at. Should you look at Germany or Catalonia or England? Well, that your impressions course through history may give you the opportunity to say, okay, well, Based on this character, he would have probably gone on this voyage, which would put him here. And then now I can do an impression of that, of his experience maybe in this foreign land or, you know, the decision to leave the place he's from, if that makes sense. No, it does make sense. And I think some people, you know, when they craft these elaborate 
persona backstories and, and they tried to put in somebody who has you know because of whatever their way they were born you know traveled all over the the european world i think a lot of times they do it because they they're trying to expand or they think it might expand the things you know then material culture that their persona would have had access to but really all it does is that ends up muddling you know muddying not muddling muddying your interpretation because when you're trying to bring in so many things you're losing the sight of the few things that this person probably used on a daily basis and this may come from a mix-up and we for those who listen to the mini episode it comes from this lack of understanding sometimes that each impression should be narrowly focused on that individual impression. And we're not trying to create snapshots of the entire life of this one adventuresome person because you have to separate yourself from the persona and the persona isn't you. And I think that's a, that's a danger that comes in when we endorse or encourage people to always personify one person. And that's something that I see as an extension of things like LARPs and SCA, where you take on a person and you register that name and that person that you're representing is the one who's assigned the accolades that you receive through the organization. It's the name that is elevated throughout the ranks and hierarchy of the organization. This happens in the SCA. This happens in Dagger here. This happens in Omtgar. This happens all over the place where one role is expected to represent your entire living history or reenactment journey for the entire time you are in that organization. And that might be a little broad strokes because I know that there is a capacity for changing your impression and such in the SCA, which I, I don't know the actual details of, but I do know there are people who maintain one name, one persona, one impression, and then shoehorn different things they're interested in onto it, which then give someone the encouragement unintentionally to maybe come up with some of these justifications and then use that backstory to legitimize justifications for things that they probably shouldn't be wearing. And yes. And that goes back to the justifications episode we, we have, you know, it's like I'm, I'm using this, you know, I'm a, I'm a Mongol raider and I'm using this uh, Scottish lockhaber axe. Well, we know the Silk Road went all the way across. My character traveled the Silk Road when he was younger, so he picked up the lock cable. It's like, nah, nah, you're just, that's just a justification to use something that you think is cool. And if you think it's cool, just, you know, if you're not doing the public uh, education part of it, use the lock cable axe. It's cool. Yeah, just own it. Own the anachronism if you're going to go for it, or create a new impression of someone who would wield that. But you can't really, it's kind of having it both ways, which is. You know, it's hard to tell someone not to have it both ways when they're also come from a position where they think they should always be this particular medieval person. I think for the most part in the SCA, uh, you know, I, I really believe that 95% of the time, 95% of the people, their persona is just a name. It's just a name they go by. Uh -huh. And they... You, they move within the society doing, you know, doing different things that they want to do, and it's just doing it under that name. And it's not that name's not actually really guiding much of an much of their impression. What's guiding their impression is their interest, and they just happen to have a name that's that's associated with it. Uh, it's like for myself, to be perfectly honest. You know, my SCA name is Alexander Clark. Very, very English. You know. Um, a very English name because I, I portray an Englishman, but I really have a couple of different personas or impressions under under that name of the persona because you know when I used to do combat, I was the soldier, I was the man at arms, I had the proper armor for it, and I used the proper style facsimiles of weapons. But then when I was done fighting, now that I'm not really fighting anymore. I've sort of taken on this sort of scholarly, you know, you know, administrative esquire type persona. So and, and that has driven my the way I dress and the clothes that I do and things like that. I still use the same name, 
but I'm no longer the soldier persona. I, I am the, you know, administrator, scholarly, professorial persona. But to split hairs here, the question is, have you written a long backstory that explains why this soldier character managed to catch a prize and become by the rank of Esquire and semi-retire into this administrative role? Or did you start a new impression using the name Alexander based off of a new interest? So is this the same Alexander Clark or are these two impressions that happen to use the same name at a convenience? It's probably they're two separate impressions that use the same name out of convenience. And and actually, this is the the third impression of Alexander Clark. And you are going to you're going to get a kick out of this. Sorry. So back years, years ago, when I was doing Renaissance Fair staged combat, I was part of a troop. And we were all, of course, knights. Um, the name of the group is called Chivalry Arms, Live Steel Entertainment. And we were all knights. And as sort of a joke, I took on the persona of Lord of Ale Sir Alexander Clark, Lord of Kent. <laughs> but it's funny. That's good. You're Renfair. You're entertaining people. That's really that's funny. That's and because, important. And that's because great for the environment. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was the good guy. I was the good guy character. I was always the good guy character. So that was my, that was the, the shtick of it. And when I came into the SCI, I actually tried to bring, to start a different persona. And I'm, I'm actually glad I didn't because that was even more of a, a fantasy-ish name. That name was uh, Gustav von Haymaker. Uh, he was oh. a, a German. I would hope so. Yeah. <laughs> and that name never stuck because I never, I never answered to it. I wasn't used to it. I never answered to it. People would, People would shout. I, I had friends who had been in the Renfair group with me that came into the SCA with me, and they'd be like, Gustav, Gustav, Gustav. And they'd be like, Alexander. I'm like, hey, what? What's up? Oh, me. Okay, yeah. So the Gustav never, never um, stuck. And I'm, I'm glad I, I don't even, I don't even know where I would be if I was Gustav von Haymaker in the SCA right now. I definitely probably wouldn't be doing down the road of English history, where I would have changed my name. But now you can change your name in the SCA. You can re-register your name. You can actually register multiple names. So you don't you don't have to be stuck to one name. You can have three or four names that are registered. So You, you very well might have joined the Lanschnet cult. Yeah, I may have. But, but that shows you, I mean, how even some of these joke personas can lead you to, to more serious... It's more serious things and more serious, you know, once I once I learned that Alexander that the name Alexander Clark was actually a very, you know, historically accurate last name, then uh, I ran with it and registered it, registered my arms and have, you know, really done, done the deep dive into English medieval history. And now I, I run a nonprofit about it. So see, who knows? Who knows where Gustav would have taken me? Right. So when I worked on the boats and we had these impressions that we were required to do, we didn't have a lot of free expression. And this kind of goes along with what you were talking about with your recent story about the personas and how you change them a little bit as you go to different scenarios and different roles. So on the ships, you had four principal characters that were in charge of the program. You had the, the ship's captain, the first mate, the second mate, and the cook. And each one of those had kind of a well-defined character personality you had the and each of these were kind of based off of characters from either the book itself two years before the mast or from from maritime literature and lore and so you had your sort of stoic aristocratic captain representing the vestiges of that really upper crust style social that still existed in the 1830s. And then you had the first mate, who was your true enforcer, hell-on-water kind of scary guy. You had your second mate, who was specifically a wastrel who was stuck with the job because he happened to be the most experienced sailor who wasn't the first mate. And so they made him second mate, and he hated it. 
And then you had your cook, who was represented the the quackery of a, a kind of a caricature of the quackery of nineteenth century medicine with the whole oh well if you've got a problem we'll just chop it off and stop it up with tar right <laughs> right the old real old sawbone style and so you didn't have a lot of free expression as to how you portrayed these people but there was absolutely zero resource as to how you got to be there and so a lot of us would come and write these kind of biographies as to why we were in the position we were and you know some of it was informed by studying the history some of it was informed from the book itself but everyone kind of had a different way of getting there and it legitimately seemed to inform their performance because it wasn't just because all of us were different people we were we were running off the same script and in many ways we were saying the exact same words every program there was a the captain had an introductory speech that was word for word pulled out of two years before the mass. Everyone had to say the same words, but they didn't necessarily say it the same way. And some of it was just because different people have different mannerisms and such. But a lot of it, you started to see people take a real ownership over their role the more that they had some idea of, of what was behind the words that they were saying. However, uh, you know, you never tried to say that Captain Aileen was the extension of who you played as Mr. Alien, the first mate, or somehow a version of who I played as Blarney, the crazy cook, with my horribly, horribly embarrassing Irish accent that I know would have offended <laughs> anyone east of the Atlantic if I had, if they had actually heard what I was trying to do. I was, I was 19 and thought I was cool. I have no regrets, but it was, an, I know that it was a horrible, horrible accent, but these weren't the same people, even though they had the same name, which is what your story reminded me of here, is that they were each different people, and they had to be different people to portray those different roles effectively, even if they, most of them used the same name. So I, I, do, I don't want to give the impression that I may have when I talked about personas before that having the same name is necessarily the problem. I think what what becomes the problem, and this is something that I've seen just in, in my experience in the ESA, which I know is is far smaller than yours, is that people do confuse their impression with themselves, and I think that's a, a manifestation of first-person impression, and that's where it gets harder and harder to have multiple impressions with the same name. If they're not making a concerted effort to remember that these are different people, and that none of them really are you, which is another huge outlier. Is if you put too much of yourself in your backstory, then you kind of start to forget who's you and who's the medieval you that you've created. And I think that's why sometimes people try to they try to shoehorn all their interests into their backstory. They try to make that justification for them to be doing something. And you really don't have to do that. I, I mean, if you're if your persona is unless, of course, you know, you're at a public show, especially a public scripted show. If your persona is a blacksmith, but you're having to cook at the show, don't try to make up some weird backstory about how, oh, well, I always used to sit next to the cook for 10 hours a day while my parents were at work. You know, it's like just say it's my turn to cook today and be a cook and be a cook. And it's. It's you don't have to be the same person. Like I already saying, you don't have to be the same person. It doesn't have to be an extension of you, and you don't have to shoehorn this elaborate backstory in order to be able to do all these different things. And specifically, when we're doing historical interpretation for the public mostly, but even for ourselves, you gotta remember that most of these people didn't have that interesting of lives. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, they were, they were interesting. I find them fascinating. Fa fascinating they, and interesting might be completely they, separate. They weren't movie screen worthy, adventuresome people to a man is what we're trying to say. Yes, exactly. So, you know, I find the medieval farmer in their daily life fascinating. I can read about that and I can watch about that and I can, you know, experiment my interpretation about that all the time. 
I don't need to say that I was the son of Viking settlers who decided he didn't like the sea, so I wanted to be a farmer. It's just, I don't have to do that. It's what does the being the son of Vikings lend to the medieval farmer? And nothing outside of, of personal interest. Yeah, uh, we, we that and that's where we want to make sure to, to backpedal a little bit in that just because we say you don't need to doesn't mean you shouldn't or don't have to or there's a problem if you do. However, just you know, keep in mind that there are some certain artifacts of error that can show up if we do too much of this. Plus, in my personal opinion, I still have a stack of books taller than my child to read. So there's only so much time I want to spend writing a story that doesn't serve me. And that might be the pragmatist in me bleeding through. I, I see a lot of extra writing as a distraction, but I don't necessarily critique anybody or think less of anyone for doing that. I just wonder if, if we make sure that we don't emphasize that overtly to the point where it, it overshadows understanding the history, because you circle back around, you know, how do you know how, whether or not some of these choices are going to be informative if we don't have that strong background in that medieval culture? If we haven't studied medieval sociology to the point where we realize that that is or isn't an influential factor, we don't really know if we're spending our time wisely on our backstory, which means that study first and creative writing second. Exactly. I mean, yeah, I, I'm I am not knocking anybody for writing cool stuff. If it's cool and it's well written, I want to read it. I think it'd be amazing. You know, I like I like fiction just as much as the as the next person. It's the I think it, it all boils down to something that Ari and I say a lot through this show is being honest for the choices we make. And, you know, why why do you want this elaborate backstory? Is it because you think it adds to your impression or just you just think it's cool and want a elaborate backstory? Both of those are valid. Both of those are very valid. Just be honest about it with people. Yeah, just not just honest with people, but honest with yourself about what is it that you're trying to get out of what you're doing? Because as we've talked about in the past, there's a huge range of medieval themed recreation that we can participate in. And none of them are lesser than others because going to the Ren Fair and having fun and doing clever jokes and enjoying yourself is important. I want people to be happy because if we have someone coming over to the living history side, and they're not happy because they feel obligated to be focused on history in some way. They're not going to give it their all, and they're always going to have their mind and their heart divided on what they're doing. So as long as you're honest with yourself as to what you want to get out of it, I mean, a lot of this may not even apply to you, and that's okay. Like I support you entirely in that. But if if that is something that concerns you and you want to make sure that you're getting the most out of your backstory, there has to be acknowledged that there's a point at which your backstory doesn't provide any more benefit outside of just entertainment value. And so going back to what, you know, we started with when I said, told Ari that what he was talking about was a character and not really a persona. That's, that's what you got to start, especially if you're doing it for living history and for educational purposes, you got to make sure you're not making a you're not making a character, you know, a characterization a or a caricature of the medieval person and the medieval life. Because it's it's very easy when you start getting into writing these elaborate backstoried personas to make them full of, you know, larger than life experiences that are really a caricature of what a medieval person life would have been. And doing that won't do justice to your portrayal because your portrayal will, will never be really grounded in the reality of the day-to-day -day medieval existence. I mean, there's also something to be said about the fact that a lot of what we do with medieval myth-busting is to peel back the layers of grandiosity that things like Hollywood and literature have applied 
to the past it, for the sake of sensationalizing history or or taking history as a ground floor for entertainment and to be able to extract what things were really like from what things were portrayed in chronicles or in movies or in stories. Uh, that's a lot of what we do with interpretation is to acknowledge the mundane and to embrace the kind of provincial, simple things that happened over the majority of the medieval period that helped medieval society run. The reason you know, we, we acknowledge things like, okay, they bathed more than people say they did, and they traveled more than people thought they did. But that doesn't mean that they were always away from home. I mean, crops had to be grown, and they had to be sown, and they had to be harvested. And the reason that people were so tied to the land is because without a tractor, you really, you need a group of people to be able to extract enough food from the ground to live, especially in harsher climates. And so a ton of their life was bound up in the simple things. And to ignore the simple things because they're not as exciting is, is shortchanging the history and shortchanging the actual good proper view of the world that we say we love because of the history of it, not just because of the excitement of it. And so it's sort of like, you know, going going to war nowadays is a whole lot of standing around doing nothing. And the exciting parts are pant filling exciting, sure, but they're brief and they're far between. And you know, most people who go to war nowadays don't even experience those. They spend most of their time waiting for it to happen and they go back home. And for those who have experienced it, they usually say that the ones who missed it are better off. But when we go and create these elaborate backstories where people are having more excitement per chapter than most people had their entire life from birth to death is not giving a accurate view of the history in broad strokes. I agree totally with everything that I already just said. And like I said earlier about the, I brought up mercenaries as a um, sort of example. If statistically, if the same amount of people in medieval times were mercenaries as I hear the story told in the SCA, no country would have ever had any sort of their own forces. Every every force in the world would have been made up of mercenaries. And none of them would have been able to eat because they wouldn't have had anyone to farm their food. Exactly. And I, I think it's just one of those things where we... We think it's cool, and they are cool. The idea of being a mercenary is cool. Although, like I said earlier, and we, and we can go into this in, in a different episode, the idea of what a mercenary was then is a little different than what a mercenary is now. So that that's a distinction to be made. But, you know, you're right. It's like, what what is being a mercenary adding to your overall portrayal? other than you think it's cool. And if, if it's just that you think it's cool, awesome. But does it does it really affect your choices? And, and I really follow the idea that a persona should be the guidepost that helps affect your choices. And if you're filling that persona with a lot of sort of outrageous adventure, then it's skewing the choices that you would make in a completely almost fantasy direction instead of the historical direction. And a lot of people can, and, and a lot of people can tell me, Matt, you're wrong. What you're talking about is boring. I don't want to be boring. I want to be awesome. And I'm like, you go be awesome, but um, just know why you're being awesome. Hmm. And this is something that it's a little bit of a tangent, but it's something that has always baffled me about people who say, oh, I I think being a mercenary is, is cooler than what you would otherwise see represented on the battlefield, is that, okay, so professional soldiers have their allure, and I get that. And I understand that in, you know, the pre-Cromwell age, the professional soldier itself was didn't really exist outside the gentry. So if you don't want to be a knight, to be a professional soldier, you effectively have to be a mercenary or a routier. And you, if you don't want to play the outlaw, mercenary is kind of your go-to. But when you think about the idea, the actual bravery that it took to be 
a peasant farmer whose entire life has been devoted to barley and maybe getting some beer on the weekends and may you know trying to find someone in your hundred person village worth marrying and then you go ship off to some who knows where you've never even heard of much less can find on a map to fight a war for some other guy who owns more than you'll ever make in your life and then you succeed at that and you come home alive i think that's there's a story there that i find so much more compelling because here's the thing that guy and the mercenary may be because uh, equipped fairly similarly you know the the mercenary you know sure they may pay get paid for what they're doing but they're also living rough and and they're paying inflated prices and they're dealing with war-torn countries they weren't always rich. Sometimes they fought to survive and they had this subsistence existence and they didn't necessarily succeed. They just didn't fail. And so you've got two guys on the field who are dressed effectively the same and are indistinguishable. And the only way you could tell the difference between which one's the, the, the man who was brought up on levy, equipped by his knight as part of the retinue and sent to war and the mercenary is if they tell you, I, I don't, I find one story to be far more interesting than the other. And maybe it's because it's the less told story. I'm not sure. I haven't really introspected too hard on that. But I do know on its surface, maybe it's because it's overdone. It's just the the mercenary story is tiresome to me. And and even having done an event where at one day of nights we played the Routier as a company of, of freemen in a free company, like we did that for one event. And that was because it was kind of a big group thing. It wasn't like the idea behind my impression over and over again. So I just see it if we if we look just a little bit deeper sometimes these stories get so elaborate that they pull me away from the history if that makes sense. Yeah, no it does make it does make sense. And I so if we look at what mercenary in itself just to go on this tangent for a minute what mercenary itself it it, it literally means from the late 14th century, when it first arrived, according to the online etymology dictionary, one who works only for hire, one who has no higher motive to work than love of gain. And and it says, and it comes from the, the directly from the Latin of mercenarius, who says, one who does anything for pay. Really, it's just somebody you hire, and for anything. A mercenary was anything that you hired to do a job. It didn't specifically become attached to the professional soldier in foreign service until the mid 17th century. So yeah, it didn't, it didn't start as combat capitalists. It no, exactly. As basically any men. Yeah. Anybody you hire for a job was be a, uh, you know, mercenary for, for hire for whatever job you hire them for, just because they want it, want the money for it. So it's, it's interesting. Again, when you're when you're doing these backstories, and I think this happens a lot when people do backstories, is they interject the modern ideas, or at least not so much modern, but post-era ideas of what some of these things were, without looking further at them to see, you know, oh, well, a mercenary for the 14th century wasn't actually what I thought it was. Yeah. So well, things like this, the sellsword are part of like popular tropes that they feel right because that's what we see and that's what we hear and that's when it's it's in a lot of our stories. But that doesn't, again, doesn't reflect the truth. And that's kind of what living history is about finding finding the truth and pulling it away from the fantasy. I can hear it right now that people are saying, "What are you saying? We have records. You know, there was mercenaries in the 14th. Uh, uh, John Hawkwood. John Hawkwood led a mercenary company. It's like, well, he led a his own private company of men for pay for the, you know, the Italians, the papal states and the papal wars there. I, he probably would not have seen himself as a quote unquote mercenary. He would have, you know, he would have said, I'm a professional soldier. I've got my own army. Yeah, he, he commanded a free company. They had words for that already. And if you, if you met him on the field, he, the word mercenary wouldn't have meant the same because the word mercenary and the word sellsword and the word routier were not synonymous with each other in his lexicon. Exactly. So that's what I mean about that, that modern, putting that modern, like you said, 
fantasy sellsword idea of I'm somebody who travels from town to town and I'll fight anybody for money. Well, that 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 didn't really happen. I mean, they're the you know the Hawkwood companies, the the, the great company there. They had contracts. They had contracts that they had to fulfill. So, and they only got paid if they fulfilled the contracts, or if somebody came along and offered them more money to break their contract. So, it wasn't yeah. just this loosey goosey guys going out there, going up and saying, "Hey, for fifty gold, I'll go fight that army for you." You know, it was it was much more a business, if anything. Yeah. It modeled actually far more closely to the established guild system that was already in place than having to. St- then, then creating some new reckless rogue system that people were unfamiliar with, that they actually sort of defaulted to things they were already familiar. But getting back on topic, though. Oh, yes, that. It, you know, <laughs> we do have topics here, folks. Um, getting back on topic a little more. This goes back into what I say, you know, looking at the story you're creating and saying, am I creating a plausible historical backstory or am i creating a modern medieval fantasy piece and that's what i mean when i say that if you're using that backstory as a scaffolding or guidepost for your impression the modern fantasy medieval piece is going to skew all of your decisions down that path and it won't necessarily line up with the medieval narrative. Yeah, that's true. So I guess the real question is, have you settled on a persona for your pilgrimage in April, uh, this month? I I am just going as the the medieval pilgrim. I don't really have a persona for it. Perhaps if I do it with some of my SCA friends, I'll be Alexander Clark on pilgrimage. Instead of Alexander Clark at battle or Alexander Clark in the at the desk writing, so really, like I said, when I I probably fall to that ninety five percent where my name is just a name that I go by, and it the idea of my um, persona being the you know, early fifteenth century lower gentry man at arms, you know, is just guideposts for you know, material culture. But how about you? Are you going to do anything special? No. So I'm just hoping that I can get the miles in. So we're on day five now. And we, on my end here, are, are working with the wild card of the fact that Carly is ponderously pregnant right now in that we will be lucky if she doesn't give birth during the pilgrimage because we're we're looking at maybe the end of April, early May. And we're really hoping for May, but it's possible that before we're even done with this, she might pop. So, well, our our real goal is to hit May the fourth because then we can have a Star Wars baby. Uh. That's a totally different realm of geekdom. So, but I just want to get the miles in. I know that I want to do more of this pilgrimage in my outfit. However, we tend to squeak it in between errands and that involves walking on asphalt and concrete and i just can't afford that many turn shoes so i am going to probably do most of it just in my clothes but when i do go out on the trails we want to do some weekend stuff i kind of want to reinvigorate that medieval march that i was doing for a while before it just kind of fell by the wayside with everything else that had to be going on and the fact that we weren't really supposed to interact with other human beings for most of that year so I want to, and what when I do, it's simply just going to be stress testing my equipment. I have, I'm going to put really no character behind it at all this year, except for the fact that I will be dressed the same as I am when I do living history impressions, and that's going to be the extent of it. My my interest is much more this time around is in the community and in making sure that people are excited, engaged, and that we actually get all the mileages in this year because we didn't get them last year. And now we have an even more compelling reason to miss it this year, but I'm, I really want to get to Canterbury this time. I, I'm sort of in the same boat. I mean, I'm using it. I've been very lucky so far this spring. You know, my, um, my family, my wife's family owns a considerable amount of land right across the street from us. So, and, and the majority of it is wooded and we get to 
there's a nice big old woods road that goes down into an old logging road that goes down into it. So we get a good chance when we go down there exploring, it, it racks up the, the steps pretty quick. So I'm hoping just by doing that, my wife and I have been getting out there every day around lunchtime to go on a walk down to the woods. It's been a lot of fun, uh, but I'm going to get out more in more gear. I've got the new uh, guard corpse that I've been uh, wearing. I like your wife's name for it best, actually. What the oh <laughs> the medieval snuggie. Yep. <laughs> it does. It looks like a medieval snuggie. It's super warm. Uh it's made by a guy uh named Adam Pajalski, he out of New York. He runs this uh, company called Apple and Plum uh, on Facebook. Really, really cool, really cool stuff. He's making nice stuff. Uh, new up and coming up and coming maker. That was actually his first commission. So it was uh it was nice to get it get the first one made for him. And it's super warm. I was out there in the rain the other day and I didn't feel a thing. And I was actually sweating when I came back home because it was so warm. But, and I'm also putting together a medieval um, 14th century like hunting outfit that I want to get out there in, in the woods once it gets a little greener. I think that'll be cool. And getting out there, my armor would be great. I haven't worn my armor in over a year. So I'd love to suit up, even just go for a walk in the woods with it down the road. It'd be fun. That's my goal. That's my goal for this. And then this year is getting outside in the woods and, and at, at different things and in gear and trying new stuff out. Sounds exciting. All right. Do you have any closing thoughts? Uh, just if uh, if you're getting out more in gear, uh, post up some pictures to our Facebook page, uh, the How to Medieval. We'd love to see it. Always love to share that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And if you think it takes 95 pages of backstory to say, I am John, make sure you give us five stars wherever it is you're listening to us. That helps us stay up high in the search functions and it helps get everybody able to listen to what we do. It's just a little thing, five stars, nothing less. Also, if you enjoy our new music, you can thank Paul Butler for allowing us use of some of his compositions. And you'll be hearing more of his music as I get better at creating transitions, intros, outros. But a huge shout out to Paul Butler, his website, if you want to buy his album. He does all the music himself, is in the show notes below. Yay, thank you, Paul. All right, bye-bye, guys. Bye, guys.